0: Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands Podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity, and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the
1: Portfolio Manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at Acuvest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Acuvest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions clients of the brands fund or accuvest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast hey
0: everybody this is eric clark from mega brands um very excited for today's conversation as as you know i spend most of my time talking about the global consumer all the trends that are happening in consumer land, as well as the the brands that we love that are really benefiting from 7 billion people around the world spending a lot of their money and their time consuming different things. But every so often you get a chance to really talk to a superior stock picker, somebody that has a very unique and differentiated approach that has an extraordinary track record of success. Um, And today is one of those conversations Um, Nathan Miller is the PM of the, of a fairly new ETF called the EMILIS alpha opportunities, ETF E O P S is the symbol. This strategy has been uh, being run in a separate account for Nathan and a few of his colleagues for a long period of time. The, again, the returns are extraordinary. The, the strategy and approach is very, very different, which makes it really interesting as a new addition to an advisor or an investor's portfolio. So without any further ado, my conversation with Nathan Miller of the MLS Alpha Opportunities ETF. This podcast is recorded on Monday, July 12th, about 9.30 Pacific time. Welcome Nathan Miller, how are you, man? Doing great, thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, uh, we've had a couple of great conversations about the, the new ETF. Uh, It's called Emelis Alpha Opportunities ETF, symbol E-O-P-S. And uh, Nathan, you are kind of the, you you know, you're the creator of this strategy, the portfolio manager on the new ETF. Um, You got, I don't know, uh, it's been been live about a month, but you obviously have a 13-year track record. And that's the fun part. You know, there's always a few hidden gems out there. You know, somebody that, that, that finds something and then sees a, a short-term track record, although it's exciting that over the next maybe hopefully month or so the, on the MLS site, you're actually going to see a full 13-year track record, which is, which is terrific for advisors and family offices. Um, but, you know, sometimes there's just this, this hidden story and this hidden gem. And I absolutely love our conversations because I'm an alpha guy. I'm a pure stock picker. I don't like things that look like the benchmark. I don't have a problem with advisors who kind of use ETS and, and, and use passive and benchmark hugging for super low fees. But I still think there's an opportunity to beat the market and beat it on a regular basis. And your track record is absolutely staggering. So I'm I'm super pumped to, to talk about the how, and the, you know, how you did that and why you created this strategy. But I, I think the first part is, let's just talk about your background, obviously, because for an advisor that's looking to to, to get something like this, they kind of want to know about where you came from and what makes you tick. And you know, I think you have a pretty interesting story. So if you could start there, that'd be terrific.
1: Absolutely. So I grew up in California. I went to school at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Both of my parents are doctors. So I was pre-med, studied biomedical engineering but really fell in love with investing uh, both through the economics program at the university and then through several internships at Lake Mason, which in the 1990s was a classic value investing house. You know, Bill Miller is an investing legend and ran the value trust. So that's where I really honed my skills as a value investor. I graduated in 2000 and joined Goldman Sachs specifically as a contrarian, avoiding all of the high tech dot coms at the time and going to an old industrials, uh, cyclicals, equity research position at Goldman Sachs. And so essentially, I worked with the same team. I've had the fortune of having great mentors uh, and worked with Chris Winnem at Goldman Sachs. And then he recruited me to SAC Capital, where I worked for Chris and Larry Foley. And essentially, for 10 years, I worked with the same team covering all sorts of industries within old economy, industrials and cyclicals, conglomerates. Uh, But we were essentially value investors and contrarian investors. I then joined Royal Bank of Canada and helped as co-head of their long short equity business for a few years. And then I guess starting in 2012, I went out on my own uh, to launch a hedge fund. And I thought, hey, this is great. You've got the pedigree, you've got the performance, you know, let's go launch a hedge fund. And and I've always been an entrepreneur and and liked building businesses and learning how things work. Uh, But we spent, you know, initially three years running a hedge fund until we realized that despite good performance, it's really hard to raise money when you can't market. (laughs) And essentially, the the seeding and fundraising window was closed post post 2008. So for the past 10 years, we've essentially been running separately managed accounts and and family offices for myself, for Gabe Hammond, and for a handful of other large clients. Uh, It's been substantially similar strategy for, you know, going on 20 years now. But yeah, as you mentioned, we've got a full audit that should be ready shortly uh, that goes back through 13 years of that track record.
0: I I mean, when when you can compound the way you've compounded in without tech, (laughs) without Internet, I mean, that's important. I mean, if you look at, at you, if you look at the best value managers and then compare them to the best growth managers for the last 13 years particularly in the public, you know, mutual funds and ETF space, it's not even close, right? So the fact that you've been able to compound as, as better than the, the most of the, the, the best performing asset classes in tech and growth is pretty astonishing as a value manager. So, well, I mean, let's talk about EOPs because, you know, when you look at the holdings, it's a very eclectic group of of names so if you can give us a rundown of just what your view is when you created this and how you run this that's probably the most important part because for you to generate that kind of alpha in quote unquote value when value's largely been out of favor versus growth is is you know pretty newsworthy in my opinion
1: yeah i think you hit the nail on the head i mean warren buffett always says the two most powerful forces are unconditional love and compound growth and so that's my mindset. I'm a long term investor. And you're right, when you can compound at high returns over a very long period of time, that's powerful. The way we do it is through a number of different, you know, running concentrated, running directional. We tend to play in sectors that are underfollowed and out of favor. And I can give you several instances but you look through our portfolio and you know we have typical position sizes that are 5 to 7% kind of high conviction ideas which is taking a lesson from SAC and frankly if you look at all the hedge funds of the last 20 and 30 years the highest performing hedge funds all have concentrated positions and you know for lack of a better word you know we don't mind tracking error we don't mind reasonable volatility we kind of have a time horizon arbitrage which is we can play for a one or two or three year Time horizon and not worry about, you know, what this quarter's numbers are. And so being a contrarian, last year is a perfect example of being very bearish on the market and being able to be directionally short. And again, what this ETF is providing, you know, keeping in the theme of MLIS is liquidity, transparency, and access. And the origin of an actively managed long short fund is there's nothing available today in an ETF structure that allows you to have a hedge fund like product. So that's the theme. Is we can be long in an up market, we can be short in a down market, we can use options, so we can sell covered calls, we can sell covered puts, uh, we can take outsized bets with minimal downside, so get an asymmetric risk reward, and it's about the structure. And then secondarily, the benefit of an ETF is essentially it's a much more tax efficient product than a mutual fund or a hedge fund. Uh, but back to your question, you know, being concentrated, owning good companies at great prices not chasing performance and being in completely under out of favor sectors is is half the battle and so you look through our portfolio today and a couple of things you'll notice is yes there's everything in our portfolio is you know a household name we own a lot of specialty retail names where when we bought them a year ago or 18 months ago you know most of the stores were closed nobody wanted to touch restaurants or retailers uh uh in the height of COVID last february and march and the same thing you know Everybody thought the RV space was dead, and so we tend to be contrarians and invest in sectors that nobody wants to touch. And if you can buy them at three or four times earnings or three or four times cash flow and just hold them, you're almost guaranteed to make money.
0: And, and what's funny, you know, like right now, correct me if I'm wrong, Signet Jewelers is the biggest position, Children's Place, then Camping World, the the top three. I mean, you know. Uh, Kohl's number four and RH number five, we have RH in common. Very few people own these stocks, right? This, this wow. is not your typical value, you know what If you look in, inside of the typical advisor's value basket, it's banks, it's industrial, just very you know very typical value stocks. This is a very unique you know value fund or, or, or ETF. Which, again, that's, what's, that's why it's valuable in somebody's portfolio. If you, you, know, if you look like Oakmark and Smead Value and all the other you know, popular traditional value funds, you know, aside from maybe the fee of the ETF, it, it's, it's less compelling than if you're doing value in a radically different way.
1: Well, <laughs> the term radically different brings to mind Ray Dalio and his famous quote, the way you really make money in the market is by being a contrarian and being right. And so I think that just the contrarian mindset is half the battle and being willing to, to have the intestinal fortitude to own names and to own sectors when you know, the consensus is that's a crazy idea. And so I think the second part of this is you mentioned Signet, you mentioned Children's Place, you mentioned Kohl's. We bought in all three of those cases, You know, our, our average purchase price was you know, three or four times normalized earnings. Our Signet, purchases last April were at $8. Children's place at $23. Kohl's at $13. And so the reason those are such large positions in the ETF day is because they've been successful. You know, basically, they're up 400% over the last year. And so that's a recurring theme. When you look to restoration hardware, you know, we bought RH, our, our initial purchase was back in 2017 in the low 20s. And you say it's sectors that people don't want to own. I'll take it one step further. Most of the names in our in our ETF are names with massively high short interest. And so restoration hardware, which by the way, it hits the nail on the head, large runway, right? They're just starting to expand internationally. It's an owner-operator in Gary Friedman, who has, you know, huge stakes. He owns about a third of the company. They're great capital allocators in the sense they bought back half of their shares. But you had a 74% short interest in a company in 2017 that was essentially trading at four times normalized earnings. <laughs> so we love. You know teaming up with great management teams and great owner operators in contrarian sectors uh at the right valuation
0: now from, from a uh, you know i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of put my advisor hat on because obviously because our our goal is to to tell this story to advisors family offices individual investors too obviously that 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 try to frame you know how might i use eops in my overall portfolio so you know, you, you mentioned the 13030. So this is essentially kind of a hedge fund structure inside of an ETF. So w- would you put, w- would you use this as somebody's kind of, part of somebody's traditional value or would you use this for someone's traditional kind of alts or both?
1: <laughs> so we've been called round pig in a square hole by several allocators because it's a non-traditional structure in the sense that you're right, we run long biased by design, And so we like to take advantage of the fact that over the past decade, the market has been up 15% a year. And if you go back the past 80 years, the market has been up 10% per year. So we like to take advantage of the market's natural tendency and upward bias. The flip side of it is we're totally unwilling to put on leverage. And so traditional hedge fund will use five, six, seven turns of leverage, which is catastrophic in a a downturn. And so you've seen the dangers of too much leverage from long-term capital management all the way through to Arshagos. So our view is we're comfortable being you know, net long 70 to 100% on average over the course of the cycle, but we want to leave ourselves the flexibility to be net short for short durations to express a view. And again, we strongly disagree with efficient market theory, which states that it's impossible to outperform the market over the long run. We think that there are unique sectors and unique approaches which give a repeatable process and edge. And so typically you'll see that small cap and mid cap value investors outperform the market by a pretty wide margin. To your point, we don't do anything in finance. We don't do anything in utilities. We don't do anything in tech or telecom or media. So there are several sectors which are value traps for lack of a better word. But the screen that we like to do is not only value, but value with a catalyst. And catalyst is a kind of a term that can encompass a lot of different things. It can be mergers and acquisitions. It can be contract wins and losses. It can be a change in management. It could be a change in capital allocation. So we don't like to buy just dead money stocks that are perpetually a low multiple.
0: Uh, As I dig down into the holdings a little bit, you know, my calculation anyway is consumers, if it's about 70% or so in consumer discretionary,
1: yeah, it is 70%. We don't have any hard and fast rules over kind of sector allocation. What we do try to take sector calls. And as a cyclicals investor, you know, there are probably a dozen different verticals or, or industries within cyclicals. You don't make money within an industry being market neutral. The airlines, for instance, you know, long delta and short American, or in the home builders, long toll brothers and short KB Home. We've run all of the statistics and they're essentially 90 95 correlated to each other so what we've realized is it's a lot easier to make money calling the cycle and being short when the market is euphoric and being long when the market is bearish and ironically if you look at sell side analyst ratings typically the sell side is bullish at the top and bearish at the trough and so you have to be a contrarian and kind of an independent thinker on where you are in the cycle we have a lot of different tools from a macro perspective right when you look at capacity utilization When you have the skill set of an equity research analyst at Goldman and you know what are the drivers of the macro cycle, what are the drivers of each industry that you're looking at, are you closer to the peak or closer to the trough? And so our viewpoint is we like to buy industries that are essentially under earning. And then when you get companies or industries that are in the penalty box and they're trading at low multiples and they start to execute, you get what's called a reversion to the mean and you get the tailwind of both multiple expansion and earnings expansion. And so I don't know if you've read any of the books like 100 Baggers, but my mindset is on very asymmetric risk reward. You know, where can I make three times or five times of money with limited downside? And so when you have that mindset, I can ignore 90% of the stocks in the market that are within 10 or 20% of fair value and focus all of my efforts on 50 or 100 stocks that are dramatically overvalued or dramatically undervalued.
0: Well, you know, selfishly, I love the, the ability that we can use EOPs because you have such a big slug of, of the consumer discretionary. Here's a, here's a fun fact that I've used a couple of times, which absolutely shocks advisors. When you ask somebody, you know the, set, the, sector, the, the primary sector ETF started December of, of uh, 98. And when you ask somebody, what, what, what do you think is the best performing sector since then? The overarching answer would be tech right? That just tends to be outperformance is linked to tech cemented in your brain period. Well, turns out consumer discretionary outperformed the S&P by a little over 200 basis points annually. Tech's actually number three. Now, obviously, they started in, you know, these indexes started in uh, in 98. So you had a great year in tech, and then three years of of a dark, uh, you know, gloomy uh, period. But the fact that we're a consumer economy, and we're out of recession more often than not in theory the best consumer brands should be pretty good performers and yet nobody i mean the the amount of people that that i meet and i talk to you know thousands of advisors a year that have any dedication to consumer discretionary in particular is like 1% right so so and, and you do it very differently than i do so selfishly i get a chance to use eops when i don't generally use ETFs in, in the brand's portfolio. So outside of consumer discretionary, you know, give us a feel for what your view of the market is now. That, that's probably the question that I get the most. Well, we've, we've gotten basically a year's worth of returns in the first six months. I'm nervous about adding anything new to my portfolio. Talk to us about your views on that and you know, as a read-through into your, into your current portfolio with potential upside.
1: So I think there's three different questions there, but high level, my view on the market is we're certainly closer to the peak than the trough. And uh, you know, I get paid to be worried when the market is not and vice versa, right? As, as Buffett used to say, uh, buy when there's blood in the streets, You know, be worried when other people are, are bullish. Uh, I've lived through a couple of really severe downturns. And the first market that I was trading was the late 1990s and the dot-com blow up and it's fascinating in me to see everybody chases performance. Everybody wants to be in the best names, almost irrespective of price. And I think part of my skill set is having, you know, frankly, I, I owned the Lake Mason Value Trust and it was down 75%. Uh, even though it was deemed to be a value index, it was actually in a lot of tech names and a lot, you know, Amazon was its largest holding. And Amazon, as you know, is a fantastic company but that stock was down over 90% between 2000 and 2003 even when their revenues doubled. So it's just if you're agnostic to valuation you're going to lose. And I think 2008 was a great example of that 1999 was a great example of that Warren Buffett looked like a fool and uh, it was only after that over the next two or three years which where he was proven correct as a value investor. So I think having a long-term mindset and having a valuation sensitivity helps. You mentioned consumer retail Uh, having outperformed tech, and I'll take that one step further, RH, which is also in your fund, you know, that's outperformed every single tech, all the FANG stocks, I mean, go back and run the numbers, the return, the compounding that you get is unbelievable. And so I look at compounders as an asset class, and there are some stocks in some unloved sectors that you would never imagine had put up 20% plus returns over extraordinary long periods of time. The tobacco stocks are one great example of that. Defense contractors are one great example of that. Things like automotive uh, parts or aerospace parts like Heiko or Transdime or AutoZone, these are all fantastic companies. And what they have in common, if you're familiar with Porter's Five Forces, is they're great brands, they're great companies, but they have moats and they tend to be out of favor. Nobody ever wants to root for war. Lockheed Martin and and Northrop and Raytheon have all tended to trade at a 30 to 40% discount to the market over the course of the cycle. And it's precisely that discount that gives them so many financial levers for things like share buybacks. And so when companies are good capital allocators, and Eddie Lampert did this at AutoZone, he did it at AutoNation, the Mendelssohn's do it at Heiko, Nick Howley did it at TransDime, people that are good managers, good owner-operators, and good with capital allocation, their stocks can outperform exponentially. You know, another one in my field is NVR, a home builder, which makes great capital allocation decisions at the top of the cycle. Right? Not to buy raw land, but to option it and limit the downside and continue to grow at 20% annually. So, yeah, that's all, that's all important and, and part of the reason why unloved out-of-favor sectors tend to outperform.
0: And again, I mean, you know, for listeners, the, the goal isn't to buy more of what you already have. The goal is to buy things that you don't have, That w- whether they're growth things or they're value things, but finding compounders in unloved and under owned areas, that's the real key to, to new allocation decisions. And, and that's always, you know, that's my story with advisors. You don't own any, any dedication to the consumer. It's been a really smart place to be. It's a consumer economy. So, so a, as advisors go through their, their, their current portfolio matrix, don't buy more of things you already own, buy something that's different, buy something that's unique, and you know, if, if we are closer to the peak tr- uh, of the market, obviously, na- strategies that have flexibility to adapt are going to be really critical. And most advisors don't have those either. They're, they're very kind of buy, hold, and hope in, in, in many ways with their allocations because they have long-term time horizons. But why not, with markets at all-time highs, with valuations where they are, why not add allocations that have flexibility to To adapt to whatever the market throws at us, because let's face it, in the last three years, we've had what? <laughs> we've had two crashes, one in Q four eighteen. We had one last year, massive bouts of volatility. For for guys like us, we I personally like vol. I I enjoy trading through vol because I I'm kind of a contrarian in, in many ways too. So, you know, from from your perspective, looking at your portfolio, I mean. Are, are there any areas that you're now seeing some emerging value or are you really kind of just sticking with current, you know, the current holdings because you still love the upside there?
1: So I'll echo what you said, that volatility is what gives investors and specifically traders opportunities. So, yeah, last year's a great example, highly volatile market. You know, thank goodness the Fed acted three or four times in March with kind of extraordinary measures which was the exact opposite of what the Federal Reserve did in Q4 of 18, essentially causing the equity crash. Uh, so I think you have to have a macro lens. You have to be following the news. You have to think quickly and act on your feet. Fortunately, having spent six years at SAC, that's something that's drilled into you is <laughs> be first to the news. Uh, don't you know? COVID was a perfect example of that. Michael Lewis has written a book called Premonition. If you were curious, which I am naturally curious and wanna know how things work, and naturally distrustful, want to you know, see the evidence yourself. You were able to figure out that COVID was a problem just by watching what the Chinese reaction was—in locking people in their homes and building field hospitals—and so that natural contrarianism plays. Um, you know, I, if you talk specifically about what we find attractive today, one of the worst mistakes that I've made in my life is selling stocks too early. Right? If you buy things at three or four times earnings and you sell them at quote, so-called fair value, you know, 10 times or 12 times earnings, and then they go to 20 times earnings, you've missed essentially half the return. And so GameStop is a perfect example. I bought GameStop at four and $5 a share and sold all of it at 19 and 20 a share in December, right before the infinite short squeeze. And, you know, the market can be irrational in the short term. Certainly individual stocks can be irrational in the short term, Uh, you know, but, but you go back to our portfolio, Our portfolio trades at a substantial discount to the Russell 2000 value index, which trades at a discount to the Russell 2000 and a massive discount to the Russell 2000 growth index. And I would just point out that the names you mentioned earlier, Signet, Children's Place, and Kohl's, even after phenomenal year-to-date returns, they're still each trading at 10 times earnings, 10 times current earnings. And I actually think with retail specifically, you now have more stimulus, not only monetary, but fiscal. Uh, in the form of 250 and $300 monthly checks going into the back to school buying season. So if you can buy companies at 10 times earnings, which can buy back their own stock and you're getting more fiscal support, I, you know, I'm not getting off the train yet.
0: For, for, so you mentioned something about 2000 and value. So if you, and and maybe since, you know, since you have an open mandate, so to speak, if advisors like to put all of the strategies kind of in some sort of a benchmark just so they can then make sure they have the exposures they want across the the cap spectrum would you put yourself in a in a small cap value overall or do you just use the s p 500 knowing that you can you know you can dip down across you know different market caps
1: so when you look at our typical portfolio construction we typically are are heavily invested in mid-caps so call it a 2 billion to 20 billion dollar market cap that has represented about 80% of our portfolio over time. And it's also represented about 80% of our PL, our profits. So, what we tend to benchmark ourselves against is the Russell 2000, which is you know, comparable to our sectors and comparable to our market caps. Uh, I think a, probably a more appropriate comp would be the Russell 2000 uh, value index.
0: Okay. Um, it- as an allocator myself with, you know, another part of AccuVest businesses, we run ETF portfolios as an OCIO. So that the fact that you are such a, an alpha focused strategy and guy, you know, selfishly, we would probably, we would probably, you know, use a bigger allocation to this ETF than you know, say somebody who stereotypically uses small cap, you know, 75% of your, of your portfolio is kind of large and then you have some mid and you're small, but given the alpha generation, I would urge people to think about this strategy as something that they would use as a, as a much bigger allocation than, than your typical small cap, just simply because you have so much flexibility and you you know particularly you have the ability to write cover calls and and have some sh- short hedges and things to me that that probably warrants bigger than a you know the 2 to 5% allocation is that i mean obviously we all want more money but i mean f- from a creation of a portfolio does that make sense to you or are you comfortable in that smaller bucket
1: no it does we have multiple strategies within the fund i think the overarching theme is a contrarian value theme but we also have a catalyst and, and kind of much more actively traded uh, sub-portfolio. So you know, roughly a quarter to a third of our portfolio is much higher turnover in nature. And it tends to be catalyst or event driven. So you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat.
0: OK. Um, how much can we talk about the prior performance on here? I know, I know you're going to be putting that on the website in a, in a fairly short order. Do, can we talk about that, do you think? Or do, do we just reference to everybody, hey, th- it's going to be up on the website, you're going to be able to see this 13 year track record, which is stellar, I mean, really stellar. Um, talk to me about that first.
1: I, I think we're, we're comfortable talking high level that you know, in a substantially similar strategy in, in an account that I've run for my family office and the account that I've run for other family offices and, and large, uh, investors we've compounded at 50 percent per year for over over the past 10 plus years and it's the same you know virtually identical strategy there will be a little bit of a difference in the fact that as an etf there's some suitability issues or some liquidity issues but you know the goal here is to massively outperform the market in bull markets and in bear markets and we really are comfortable with volatility in the sense that this is not we're not trying to minimize volatility we're trying to maximize long-term returns so if you're familiar with the Kelly criterion, we like to size up our core conviction ideas. And our view is if we have high confidence that a company is going to be acquired at a substantial premium, if we have high confidence that companies are going up 50% plus because they're winning contracts or they're going to be earnings, that's not something you want a 1% or 2% position on. That's something you want a 7 to 10% position on. Uh, you know, So... We're comfortable being concentrated, we're comfortable with modest volatility uh, and the, the trade-off is we expect much higher returns over the long run.
0: I mean, listen, 50% annualized a year is unbelievable. Just so people understand, uh, over the weekend I looked at the last 10 years, the The best performing sector was semiconductors. That's about 24% annualized. <laughs> uh, that that was as good as you can get and, and growth was where it, it was at. Um, so, listen. If you don't get fifty percent annualized, nobody's gonna. Nobody's gonna. You know, give you give you any grief. Twenty four percent is the best that it's gotten, and in and it was growth, and it was tech. I suspect it's not going to be growth in tech ten years forward, looking backwards from a mean reversion perspective. So, you know, from an allocation perspective, you have to believe it's something. That's, that's not typical of the last 10 years and, and that has flexibility with, with valuations here. Talk to us a little bit about you know your, your views on what the future might hold from a mean reversion perspective.
1: So Eric, that's absolutely correct. Uh, all of the statistics, all of the history, and, and being a student of history, that proves correct. That most retail investors lose, and Fidelity has run studies on this when Peter Lynch was running, Uh, the Magellan Fund, that most retail investors are chasing performance. They're buying outperformers, and that actually exacerbates the problem. So you're correct. If you go back throughout history and look at what asset classes and what sectors outperform, if you have been outperforming, there tends to be a reversion to the mean where you then underperform on a go-forward basis. Uh, So our view is, you you go back and study Buffett in the late 1990s to early 2000s, we're okay underperforming in a market that we deem irrational. You know, we don't care if we're underperforming meme stocks that are up a thousand percent. We think we know how that movie ends. Uh, we think it is, you know, <laughs> reckless to own things where the fundamentals are disconnected from the stock price. And so, you know, the the nice thing about this structure is we're able to actually short those and do it in a prudent fashion. You know, there's been a lot of press on hedge funds that have gotten clobbered this year. Uh, we'll, we'll make the comment that you know, to have one or 2% positions in something that could double or triple is not catastrophic, but to have core concentrated short positions is something we would never do. You know, we would never take a five or 10% short position in something that's highly volatile or or susceptible to an infinite short squeeze. And just to summarize, you know, you saw with Volkswagen and Porsche a decade ago, you've seen it with a lot of small caps. Uh, You know, that's not something we play in. That's not something we would ever get concentrated in. And I think from a risk management perspective, you know, it's pattern recognition. We've seen the types of names with high short interest or that are susceptible to gamma squeezes, and we kind of steer clear of those.
0: One of the one of the fun facts in our industry is that, I mean, everybody kind of knows, you know, roughly 85% of active funds fail to meet their benchmarks on a regular basis. What people don't talk about is the managers that did beat their benchmarks, only 5% of those tend to continuously outperformed for the follow, for the for the forward 3 years which which just kind of shows you style factors move in and out of favor and for a guy who runs a contrarian value portfolio opportunistic value strategy to have outperformed so radically when value as a style factor has underperformed for the last 10 years is t- to me truly tells you how different and unique and differentiated this type of approach is relative to, you know, very kind of traditional style factor, style box driven strategies.
1: I think there are a couple of other benefits there. Market timing has certainly played a role, you know, being long when the market is going up and being short when the market is going down. I mean, that's a perfect example last year. I think that, you know, we don't want to bucket ourselves into any one specific, you know, value connotation. We can also be garpy. Uh, the one thing we're cognizant is we're not going to buy, you know, the most loved sectors and the most loved names ever. And the one place that, in my personal career, I've, you know, you steer out of, outside your fairway, that's where you get lost. And so, I'm going to try to avoid some of the mistakes I've seen other managers do. And you know, I think if you look through our portfolio, you're going to be hard pressed to find one tech name. You're going to be hard pressed to find <laughs> one high valuation name in our long book. And I think if we just stick to our knitting and, and weather the storm. To your point, if we can do well when the value uh, stocks are out of favor, I think when that factor changes and, va- and value starts to outperform, we'll do just fine.
0: Let's talk about, so within the flexibility, because I, I do really think that flexibility in a variety of ways is going to be really important to driving alpha for the next you know three plus years. What can you do? I mean, could you guys hold cash? Or will you will you be fully invested the whole time? Talk to me about the, you know, the cash component, then I want to move into, you know, how you might if you were a little nervous about markets or you saw something that really made you cautious, how you might extrapolate that.
1: Sure. So, yeah, we're comfortable. The mandate in our prospectus is we can do a lot of different things. We can own debt, we can own equities, we can own cash uh, bonds, you know, whatever we want to own. Uh, r- simplistically, I'm an equities guy. And so I would expect that 80% plus of our portfolio will always be in equities or cash. Um, there's two different methods we have for hedging if we expect downside. The first is what's commonly known as an overlay and we can do that with index options. So I think you know, coming into the pandemic last year is probably the best example. You know, When you realize that you've got exponential growth when you, you have to have common sense and look at what China was doing and the statistics they were reporting in, in real time to realize it was exponential growth. But then there are a lot of analogies that you can use. You know, Ray Dalio has a quote in his book, Navigating Big Debt Crises, that just because you haven't seen it in your lifetime doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But even in my lifetime, we saw the impact that Ebola had in September and October of, of the 2014, 2015 timeframe. We saw the impact of, of the H1N1 bird flu especially on airline traffic in 2010. So it was kind of common sense that you want to hedge a portfolio for something that has catastrophic downside risk. And so the way we did that was with Russell, S&P, Dow Jones and NASDAQ put options. And if you remember in January and February of last year, implied volatility was extraordinarily low. So the cost of putting those options on as a portfolio insurance were extraordinarily cheap. We felt that was a more tax-efficient way of of hedging the portfolio than selling individual securities. And it was also much simpler. And then, of course, we we, we had calculated that shutting down the economy for a month would be a five to 10% decline to, to annual GDP. And kind of back of the envelope calculus would suggest, you know, again, based on the Ebola and based on the bird flu that, you know, the market could be down 25 to 30%. And that's almost exactly what ended up playing out. And then we were able, again, market timing, which most people should not attempt. uh, We were, we were able to go from net short to net long. And, you know, if you remember March of last year, the Fed stepped in three or four times with really backstopping the economy in several different ways with emergency rate cuts and opening lines of credit and, uh, essentially backstopping all corporate debt. That was our all clear signal. And that's when we went and shifted to long biased and specifically as a cyclicals investor, you buy when there's blood in the streets. You don't wanna own the safest, highest quality at the trough. You wanna own the most distressed, the most out of favor. And so essentially the construction of our portfolio today began in earnest uh, by stocks that we bought in March and April and May of last year. And generally we'll own stocks for one or two years. Uh, unless they become overvalued. That's just generally the rule for how you maximize your return.
0: You know, it's funny. No, nobody uh, nobody ever created the highly levered, terrible balance sheet on the verge of bankruptcy uh, ETF. <laughs> like that, that's what you want to own coming <laughs> out, of a, out of a recession, right? It's sort
1: of the opposite of your black swan tail risk fund. <laughs> Probably works just once a cycle. Uh, it's funny, I had dinner with Bob Prince, one of the CIOs at Bridgewater a few years ago. And he told me, he kind of laughed. He said, why are you a, a long, short guy? You only need to be short once a cycle. And you kind of sit back and you reflect on it. And you're like, Kinecos and, and some of the largest short sellers in the world have realized that, right? In a market that has gone up 15% a year for a decade, you know, in hindsight, you're kind of an idiot to run a, a short book. Uh, but even a long, short book is not an optimal strategy. The optimal strategy is to only be short when the market is going down and other than that be long biased and so i think that was well well spoken
0: i have i've always said that you know and i have some friends that are in the hedge fund business with some you know pretty big popular funds like i'm i'm not a if if i don't feel like it's smart to hedge then why should i be hedged i mean to me it just seems like you're holding yourself back at a time when the odds really favor you not being hedged. But, I, I you know, I get the story of that industry is, is much different than the story that, that I certainly play. You know, I'm, I have lots of portfolio flexibility too. I can hold a bunch of cash, I can buy bonds. I mean, we've used it a few times, which is why the beta is pretty small. Do, do, you, do you have any um, of the kind of the MPT stats from, from the, the look back? Uh, I know the returns have been stellar from a volatility perspective. I mean, you kind of are, are you kind of tend to be market market volatility or had you tended to be less than that? Or if you have any of that, certainly would love to share that, too.
1: So we have all that attribution analysis, which we can email you and, and post on our website. I would think to summarize that what we care about is do- downside volatility, not upside volatility. And so you look at something like the sharp ratio and they penalize you for upside vol. You know, a year when you're up 100% should not be a penalty. So we think the more appropriate measure is something like the Sortino ratio, which only mm-hmm. only you know penalizes you for downside volatility. I would say if you take a step back and you just look at the sectors that we are trading and investing in, they tend to be higher beta. So the Russell 2000 is higher beta by virtue of the fact that it's small and mid caps. Ironically, that's what we think to your point about you know volatility giving you opportunity. The pendulum swings. Much further in small and mid cap space. You've got fewer sell side analysts. You know, you've got less mature companies. And when you, you know, if you go back to read a book like Hundred Baggers, for instance, you're not going to be a hundred bagger by owning Tesla or Amazon or Facebook today. You're going to do it in large part by a five hundred million to five billion dollar company that is the next Facebook or Google. And so our view is we like to buy great companies early in their life cycle, and you know, essentially we're okay with volatility. Our portfolio on average runs at 1.2, 1.3 beta. And I'd say we're comfortable with that. You look back to guys like Warren Buffett and he's had two massive benefits. Number one is the modest use of leverage. And so if you look at his portfolios and you divide it by kind of a 1.35 beta, it, it, you don't get any alpha. And then secondarily, he's had a negative cost of capital by virtue of kind of the captive insurance company. He's had a zero cost of capital. So those are really Warren Buffett's two big benefits that rarely get spoken about. But our view is we're comfortable with a little bit more volatility, but we don't ever wanna have a permanent loss of capital. We want a nice margin of safety. And look, this is a very humbling business. Like frankly, you're wrong 50% of the time even if you're doing your job. And the great line I appreciate from Steve Cohen is, you're always wrong in this business. You're either not large enough if you were right, or you're just dead wrong. (laughs) <laughs> by owning something that goes against you. So you can't ever win.
0: Well, I, you know, a little teaching moment. I mean, we lean on Sortino. I'm, I'm really glad you talked about Sortino. I think it's an underutilized metric and it really does carve out, you know, the, the good vol, which everybody loves and really focuses on a manager's ability to, to navigate through difficult times. And at the end of the day, that's what people want. Everybody wants good upside. But, you know, clients don't want to get radically seasick just to get that good upside. If you can somehow give people that that holy grail of great returns, but a smoother ride, that's really what people want. And the way to analyze that is, you know, look at your overall portfolio and not just focus on your traditional metrics, but let's let's stack rank by Sortino, because that's going to tell you who's good at managing bad vol uh, or downside vol. And you know, he- hearing you say that, it's certainly one of the numbers that we use a lot. Um, and let's face it, nobody—you know—I love your quote. Nobody, nobody wants to own stocks that are in the penalty box, you know. And and that's probably why the the allocation to EOPS is so important and interesting for people because they don't own anything like this. They should obviously own something like this. The returns have been extraordinary. It's, it's not, there's not, there's going to be very little overlap between what somebody owns today and, and adding an allocation to EOPS, which is great because, you know, people still manage their overall book and their, and their holdings. You're, you're just not going to have a lot of exposure to the things that Nathan has in this ETF. And it, it's very different and very flexible, which again, I'm going to lean on the flexibility over and over again because i'd love to be wrong and think you know the market com- compounded another 15 plus percent a year i'm just you know historically speaking i don't know that that's going to be the case so having somebody who has more levers to pull has to be added with those who don't have many levers to pull and sadly that's the bulk of people's portfolios
1: i think you also have to take into Affect psychology, which is human behavior, which is right. They, they sell their losers and they buy their winners. And it's that that exacerbates uh, stocks from their fair value. And so you have to, re- I, w- I would advise you to at least, you know, put 5% or 10% into a contrarian set. Number one, because it's negatively correlated to what you own, which is the real benefit of diversification, right? Owning five high tech. Growth stocks or you know thematic, disruptive, innovative ETFs is not true diversification, right? It's essentially correlated to itself. And understanding you know recency bias or extrapolation bias, where just because stocks have gone up massively the last six months or the last year, and you know there's some very large ETFs that outperformed massively last year and then have been a disaster this year, those are things you need to really worry about because you know, basically. Retail investors are not experts. They don't know what they own. They don't know the valuations of what they own. And they're trusting their advisors. And so it's really the advisor's job to hold your hand and make sure you're not selling during a downturn, but also to make sure that, that catastrophic downside doesn't happen. The peak to trough, you know, when investors are down 25 and 30%, that's when they sell. And so I think that EOPS is actually a diversifier. It's more of a shock absorber to a traditional portfolio especially if somebody that's had big gains in tech stocks or big gains in in these disruptive, innovative ETFs.
0: And you own, a, I mean, you own a, a big slug of this, right? I mean, from your from your own portfolio, talk about eating your own cooking. A large part of your net worth is in this strategy, correct?
1: Yeah, Gabe and I are partners. We've invested $100 million in seeding this strategy. Two thirds of it is in the publicly traded ETF. We think that we want the majority of our assets aligned with our investors and we're cognizant, you know, we're skeptical and we've been in the investment business a long time. We're skeptical when guys are launching kind of heads, I win, tails, you lose strategies. So our view is we want to eat our own cooking. And and at least in the near future, our incentive is to put up monster returns on our own capital more so than it is to go out and gather assets for, you know, 1.75% fee. So our view is our economics are skewed towards putting up huge returns. That's how we're gonna make a lot of money.
0: Absolutely, I, very rarely are you gonna hear from a, a manager that, that has that amount of money invested in a, in a, in a strategy. So, you know, just to summarize for everybody, you know, agnostic to valuation, um, you're gonna lose. And that's really important when valuations are at all time high. So, so making sure you have people managing your portfolio that aren't agnostic to valuation, I think is super important. Finding compounders in unloved, under-owned uh, industries is really important. That's what EOPS does, You know, kind of a contrarian value strategy that also looks for value with a catalyst, has lots of flexibility um, by, by ETF prospectus to be long, to be short, to have some hedges uh, and not invested in probably the most crowded trades, which everybody probably is overowned has overowned for years. And it worked. but you know that's what makes it such a great diversifier. Anything you want you want to kind of end with, and then I can use uh, the the MLS contact email address for people that want to learn more.
1: Now, we think we've built a great product for long term compounding of returns. I think we have a little bit more tolerance for volatility because we don't use any leverage. Uh, We like to buy out of favor names, and we know from experience you can massively outperform the broader market throughout the cycle. We think that the ETF product and wrapper specifically allows for access to retail investors and a broader market. We think it gives liquidity where you can literally buy the stock and sell the stock uh, or the ETF whenever you want. There's no lockup. It's not a multi-year commitment like a private equity fund, and you also get transparency. You know what you own. You know the constituents of the ETF on a daily basis. We have the ability to rebalance the portfolio uh, and take directionality to take exposure you know net long or net short in bear markets or bull markets and it's not taxable it's tax deferred uh to end investors until they actually sell their shares so that that's the pitch
0: okay the you know for etf buyers and i you know you always get this question and i always laugh as a fund as a fund manager nobody ever called and said hey how many shares have you, uh, have you sold to investors today to know if there's any liquidity? If you have, you know, unless you're placing, you know, a little more than a hundred million in assets, the implied liquidity of this ETF is plentiful. So don't worry about, you know, if it hasn't traded that many shares on a particular day, certainly you, if you want to get a create um, MLS can help you with that, or your own trading desk can help you with that, but, but do not let, Daily volume in an ETF drive a decision whether you buy that ETF or not because it really doesn't matter. And I know that you know some people just look at an ETF and they kind of think, well, it's only traded you know fifteen thousand shares today, um, and they think you know penny stock. No, absolutely not. The thing has plenty of liquidity. You're not going to have a problem getting the shares that you need. You're not going to have a problem getting rid of the shares should you ever want to do that. Particularly if you're using Amelus or your own market makers, whether it's Schwab or Fidelity or Morgan Stanley or, or or wherever, right? Am I missing any of that?
1: No, I think that's an excellent message. That we have no liquidity issues uh, until we're at the several billion dollars a level, and you know we're not going to be there for a while. Uh, the other thing I may have failed to mention is that look, we realize there's a difference between good companies and good stocks, and that's ultimately if you're buying stocks that have perceived certainty with you know great backlogs and great brands, they typically trade at higher multiples. It's baked into the price, but the future's never as clear as it seems. And the same is true when there's no catalysts and you're buying things in the depth of a crisis, the world keeps turning. And generally a reversion of the mean, it pays you to buy low valuation stocks. And so you know we don't mind buying good companies at great prices. Nathan, uh,
0: so Nathan Miller, Manager of the EOPS ETF, that's Emily's Alpha Opportunities ETF, um, the website for Emily's to get more information. And you can even on their website under the contact, you can put in your name and your email address and do a, a call with any of their professionals over there. I think it's capitalmarketsatmlist.com. Correct me if I'm wrong, if there's another email address you think is a better one for people.
1: I, I think that's great. There's uh, several different ones on emlist.com.
0: Okay. And Emily's is E M as in Mary L E S dot com. They have seven or eight different, really interesting, very differentiated ETFs. So please check out their website. Nathan, man, super good to catch up with you. I love this strategy. I'm already an owner of the ETF in my personal account. And that's saying something because 99.9% of my assets are in the brands fund. So, like you, I eat my own cooking, but. I just love this story and it's so radically different from what we own on the on the brand side that the two together make a really interesting combo.
1: I appreciate you. Thanks for having us on Eric.
0: Absolutely. Talk to you later. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.